Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us uh, this week. I'm Ari McGee, joined as always by the three musketeers of Author News. I've got Jim Heskett. Oh man, I'm super excited to be here. Yes, I've got Pippa <laughs> Werner. Yo. <laughs> and I've got uh, the Porthos of the group, who is definitely uh, Nick Dacker. I'm going to be NPR guy this episode. How about the guy <laughs> from Parks and Rec? Remember, like the mm. take the takeoff of NPR, and he goes, "Thoughts for your thoughts." No, oh, yeah, your thoughts. <laughs> I don't remember that. I remember Purd happily. Yeah, yeah, and he says, "What does he I'm say?" The one the band that they're listening to, Leslie Nope's like, "This is weird," and he's like, "Yes, it's a uh, Iranian slash Finnish lesbian <laughs> death metal cult band." <laughs> you know, she's like, "Oh, it's great." Sure. <laughs> In any event. All right. Good stuff, guys. Well, we've got quite a few stories to get into today. So if there is no further ado, let's get into the news. No, no. We're tentatively we're getting into the news. We're, we've got one Was foot. I muted? I think I was muted. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. Because you yeah. were on it, dude. That timing was There were just perfect. silence and you dancing in the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, you know what? Can't win them all, guys. Can't win them all. We yes, get pretty close, though. I think. Or any of them at this point. <laughs> so. We did it once. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And Jim beatboxed <laughs> it on time for us once as well. That was awesome. So, all right. In any event, let's get into the first story. It comes to us from a former guest on the show we've got dave chesson talking about vellum and uh, the title of the no, really. yeah, yeah well i'll let you guys uh i'll let you guys tear that apart but uh, the title is how to use vellum on windows a 2021 guide and i've made uh, no bones about the fact that i love vellum it's one of the two things that i don't think i could operate without uh, the other being book funnel so Dave's got, there's a lot of info in this, and it's talking about Vellum, which is traditionally a Mac-based program. How do you use it if you want to use it on your Windows operating system? So I'll let you guys kind of chat about whether you think it's uh, very feasible to use on Windows, and then maybe what the greater point of this article is. Uh, Jim, what you got for me? I don't know, but it seems like for Mac in the cloud, a dollar an hour seems kind of spendy. But yeah, Dave's article is talking about how there's a Vellum is a book formatting software, ebook and paperback book formatting software, and it's available exclusively on Mac. So if you want to use it on Windows, you have to do one of a couple of workarounds. And this article explains how step by step how you do that. Mac in the cloud looks like the main option, a dollar an hour or 25 bucks a month. But those both seem kind of spendy. I think just buy a Mac and buy Vellum. All right, Pippa, what do you think? Are you a Vellum user or are you one of those formats on your own and stuff? Yeah, so back when I started, when I didn't have any gray hairs and there were dinosaurs running, roaming the earth, I used to format in Word with mm. rocks. 
and I would just like sit down and spend, you know, however long formatting with the manual drop caps and watch, you know, Star Wars in the background or whatever. And then I got Vellum and agonized about whether I should buy the unlimited package or not mm. and got into the first book and did it in about two and a half minutes flat. I was like, Ooh, yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> so huh? That said, what I do actually like about this article is that there is great craftsmanship behind it. And so there is like a step-by-step -step with pictures, how you can use Mac and cloud, how you can use, you know, all of these other things. And then we get down to the bottom where Atticus, which is obviously one of the main points of this article um, is brought up. And I am actually looking forward to seeing how Atticus works because it, I have a Mac and a PC and it's kind of a pain in the ass to switch back and forth between the two of them to get mm. my EPUBs and all of that going on. So I gotcha. I gotcha. Nicholas. Yeah. I just can't see past the point of the artist. Being <laughs> like he's, it's almost like, and I love Dave. We all love Dave. We love you Dave. Know Dave. You have to love Dave, but if you're Dave, you run a business called Atticus. It's kind of in your best interest to make anything besides Atticus as annoying as possible. Um, I feel like this is one of those memes. It's like everyone and there's, it's blank. And then it says, Dave explains how to use vellum on Windows. Like nobody's asking that question as far as I know. I don't think anyone I've ever talked to was like, man, I, I just want to use vellum specifically on Windows because Windows is so much better. It just doesn't seem like an argument for me. So, yeah, good article. I mean, I guess these are good options, but I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but I can't. So I'll pass. Okay. <laughs> Here's the question I want to ask of you three. Do you think it's important to make your books look pretty? I like to, but I literally have OCD. So what do I know? Mm. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't really care how my books look. I think pretty is such a subjective word. And simplicity wins the day for me. But that's also coming from like before all this, I had to use InDesign and set up a book template and do individual chapters and load them in and then spit that out and then somehow come up with an ebook format that was not terribly dissimilar, you know? And so when Vellum came out, I was like, I don't really care what it looks like. I can just press a button and generate these books. Let's do it. Yeah, I kind of operate under the assumption that with my formatting knowledge and skill, Vellum's going to be better than anything I can do and it'll just spit out a format that works. And I don't care enough to hire a professional formatter who I know will do a bang up job and all of that. But it's just Vellum is 95% of it for Vellum's 95% of it for about 10% of the cost. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about my mic, everyone. No worries. No worries. I'm in the same boat. I don't really care that it looks pretty. I just care that it looks professional and that it looks similar to all the things that I've done in the past. You know, the first time I did a book, I paid someone to format it. And then like every time that I caught a spelling error or I wanted to change the link or, you know, all these things I wanted to change, I had to get with her and hope that she'd get me in. And it was just a mess. So anything that I can just go in and cut and paste and then press generate, I'm very happy with. So that being said, you know, when Dave was on the show and he was talking about Atticus, I'm definitely not anti you know, finding something else that makes my life easier because uh, I'm just kind of all about the ease of my life. So I guess we'll have to see how it all goes. So, but in any event, that article will be in the show notes for everyone to check out. So the next story, I got to be honest with you, when uh, this comes to us from the Netflix tech blog via Jim Heskett, uh, when he first 
pasted it out for us to look at, gave us the link. I took a cursory look at it, and I really wasn't that interested in it just because it is what it is, I thought, on the surface. But as I took some time and really looked into it, it's a lot cooler than I thought it was. The article is about how Netflix not only changes their thumbnails on the shows that you watch, you know, kind of frequently. So everyone knows, like, you've seen Stranger Things with, you know, Eleven's nose bleeding. You've seen one with the kids. You've seen one with Hopper and stuff like that. Uh, But further in this article, it says that they actually change it based on what you watch. So, like, say, for instance, if you watch a lot of, like, romantic comedies, they might have the thumbnail for Stranger Things that they cater to you be a part where, you know, Hopper and Joyce are laughing or something. And if you watch a lot of action, maybe it'll be a thumbnail that's a little more action-oriented. And I think that's really smart. Like, I think that's really cool. And I like this article a lot. Nick, why don't you go first, man? What do you think about this? Because I know you've got a lot of graphic eye that you look at stuff, so. Thanks, man. I I love this article. It's really well written. For one, I love the fact that there is a Netflix tech blog. I had no idea this existed. So thanks, Jim. I know what I'm reading the rest of the week. I'm really curious how this plays out for authors. And if this, well, I should say, if this ever will play out for authors, meaning, you know, I've thought this before, like as, as we get into what some people are calling like a web 3.0 stage where everything's sort of neural net and machine learning driven, it's far easier. You don't need quantum computing now in order to, to generate personalized recommendations and personalized situation. I call it situational browsing. So if I'm on Amazon, I wonder how a certain book cover would be, would, would catch my eye versus a separate book cover for the same title. And I think there's potential goldmine here for being able to attract different eyeballs onto our books. Like right now, we can't test multiple cover iterations. That's just not something Amazon and other bookstores allow us to do. Uh, but I think it's coming. Um, a while back, Jay Conrad, Joe Conrad is blogging about trying to use like GIF images. And we should probably have a sidebar about why it's pronounced GIF so that I can argue with Jim again. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, yeah, uh, images right that now. were moving, the cover images that were moving, there was things that were like sliding around or like a fog that would kind of lift up over it. It was really cool because it's obviously immediately attractive. It's video as opposed to just um, static images. And so this is sort of a similar thing where I'm wondering if there's any advancement to be made in the book world. If Netflix is playing with this, you know, of course, at the data to, to show one way or another whether or not it's helpful to have personalized images, I'm just really curious about how or if, if it will work the same way for authors. Pippa, what do you think about this? I'd love it. I don't have any of the technical expertise to do it myself, so I would mm-hmm. need to wait for them to, to put it in on their own. But I was thinking in the background about, like, we can at least do different advertising images, but then when mm-hmm. they get to the book. On the other hand, if you sell directly via your site, you could use different covers. Mm-hmm. Mm. It could be so. as simple as A-B testing, right? I mean, you've got yeah. one cover here that's going to, and, and then you're advertising both of them to the exact same yep. target demographic. So be able to tell pretty quickly which cover is preferred by that target oh, man. target demo. Yeah. Like another example of this is like further down in the article, they're going to show you the Pulp Fiction thumbnail, right? But for someone who's kind of watched Kill Bill or Paycheck or a couple of other movies with Uma Thurman, it's the famous picture of her laying on the bed smoking the cigarette, right? But for someone who's maybe watched Grease and Urban Cowboy and a couple other Travolta movies, uh, the picture is a picture of Travolta from the movie. And I remember a while back hearing uh, someone who was big on Facebook ads talk about 
when they would target different audiences, they would have different art to target different, something like that effect. But I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I don't know what I'm talking about. Jim, what do you got? This was from you, man. So what do you think, man? Yeah, well, I didn't know the Netflix tech blog existed before this. I just, I don't know how I saw this article, but it just came across my desk somehow. I find this fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like when Netflix talks about how they don't have one product, they have 200 million products. That's a really interesting way to look at it. And it's amazing that we have the technology, like Nick said now, where we can actually make this happen. I feel like, what do I want to say about this? You know, I, we can't, it would be amazing if Amazon allowed us to A-B test covers. You could, you know, like was mentioned, A-B test covers on your own website. You can A-B test, maybe not covers, but different types of imagery on different social media channels. You know, you might find that a certain kind of image from your book works better on Facebook and some might work better on Instagram or fucking talk or whatever it is. Um Sorry, we just hit that uh, parental advisory <laughs> explicit lyrics on the podcast. I really just think this is so interesting that it reminds me of Chris Fox's talk that he gave at 20 Books two years ago when he talked about book covers and he talked about symbols and about how our lizard brains are geared to recognize certain symbols based on things that we like. And so he talked about that as how you know what goes on your cover. When you're doing a swords and sorcery book, you want to have a sword on the cover or have a sigil or something on the cover because those are symbols that we associate with those tropes and associate with those genres. And so this is exactly what Netflix is doing. They're so advanced, they can just laser focus it that the symbol is directly geared toward you. I mean, have you ever had the experience with, um, I have a Netflix list, which is all the stuff over, over the years people told me I should watch. And every once in a while, I'll go look at that Netflix list and browse through it and figure out what I want to watch. And I've seen these same 50 things in my Netflix list for years. So I don't even really see them when I'm looking at the list. But sometimes Netflix will change the cover art on one of those things. And then I'm looking through the list. I'll go, oh, what's that? Oh, that's that show. But it worked because it caught my eye. You know, mm-hmm. the, the different cover did its job and it caught my eye and drew me over there. And then mm-hmm. I just go hit the Netflix random button anyway, because I can never decide what to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they took the office off, it was hard for me to figure out what to watch every night. So, I know, right? Not going to lie. Not going to lie. Screw you, Peacock. I'm not going over there. So. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, this was really cool. If you're listening to this, go find this article. We've got it in our show notes. I think you'd like it. I think it takes a really kind of interesting thing for all four of us to go, oh, that's pretty cool. And no one uh, defecated on it. So good article, Jim. Good article. <laughs> Okay, the next story up is, what is Purple Prose, a guide for writers? So I'm not going to bother reading all this out. I'm going to let you guys kind of dissect it for me because I don't mind telling you, I don't really know what it is. Like, I hear people talk about it all the time. I assume it's just like being wordy and using a bunch of words that you don't need to and like lurid or something, but I don't really know. No one's ever accused me of using it, so. Maybe I'm not good enough at that. So uh, let's see. Who knows? Jim, what, what the heck's purple prose, man? Well, I, there's a part in the article where it basically says it's an over-reliance on adjectives and adverbs. Mm. I mean, that is most simple. That's what it is. You know, there's nothing wrong with adjectives. There's nothing wrong with saying, bring me the green pen. So you don't have to cut green from that sentence because it's not hurting anything. <laughs> but, you know, give me the lugubrious green pen. 
probably not necessary. I don't even know what lugubrious means. It's just a word that I say from time to time when I want to use a 50 cent word. Well, fortunately, we have our adult rating already, so you can say lugubrious. It's probably offensive to somebody. I don't even know. It's very sad. But like, is it? Yeah, is that it what it means? You look really sad. Lugubrious. Oh. You're just like oh. morose. And- oh. That's such a better word than sad. <laughs> <laughs> Why use three letters when you can use 15? That's the basis Which, of French. It's the basis of purple prose, too, you know, using more when less would work. I think probably maybe I'm developing this theory right here as I'm saying, but I think it's probably a fear that the reader won't get it. You know, there's a certain point in your writing where you learn how to hold back things in your writing because you want the reader to connect the dots. Mm. And because readers feel smart when they connect the dots. You know, you want your reader to figure out the plot twist like three sentences before it happens, because Mm -hmm. then they feel super smart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they can be like, I knew it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel if I figure out the twist. You know, if I figure Mm -hmm. out the twist 10% into the book, I'm going to be super mad. But Mm -hmm. if I figure it out right before it happens, I get to think I'm smart. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe purple prose is feeling like the reader won't get the scene unless you over explain it. I don't, this is, I'm just sort of making that up as I go along. I don't know. Mm. I'm done. Nick, <laughs> no one could see, but he just dropped his mic and he's <laughs> currently looking for it on the floor. Like Nick. flip the table over too. <laughs> I'm with Jim. I mean, I think this is, it's subjective, right? So every reader is probably going to define different things purple or not. I don't know yeah. if that's racist to say. Like but, Pippa's um, shirt, Pippa's jacket. Is your jacket purple, right? I would yeah, it's, that as it's a lot more maroon shit. in person. Oh, is it? Oh man, it looks quite purple here. Very regal, very regal. Very Sorry, regal. Nick. Go that ahead. No, it's fine. I do like to give you some examples. So I think this is one of those situations where, like the the judge asking about or people asking, you know, how do you know it's porn, pornography, and the judge says, you know, you'll know it when you see it. I think that's probably the best way to describe purple prose for me. Is one of those things where, and again, it's still going to be subjective. I think out of 100 readers, maybe 80 of them will think it's purple. And some of them will be like, no, this is not purple. I don't, colorblind. I don't, I don't know what to call non-purple prose. Um, I don't have much on this. I feel like I'm probably the worst offender when it comes to purple prose. I would say all of my books are probably about five words long. And then I purple them up and make them about 100,000. So I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying maybe don't do it. <laughs> right on right on pippa well yeah i agree with what nick said about it you know it's obviously subjective right so one person's lush prose is going to be another person's purple prose etc etc but i've also found as i read across several different genres that it's important to match your prose style to your story so for instance if you're reading kushiel's dart that's a very different prose style than like pattern recognition by william gibson and there are reasons for that. It, it props up the way the story is written and it it really sinks you into the world of it. And so I guess I would say, you know, if if you were to put Jacqueline Carey's writing style into a William Gibson book, that would feel really out of place to me. So there's also a certain amount of variance in how you're describing things based on what you're writing about. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe different expectations for different kind of books and genres and stuff yeah i think to avoid purple prose not only you know let readers connect the dots like jim Mm -hmm. said but also 
focus on what you want to be explaining. Not everything needs to be adjectivized. Mm. That's a word. That's definitely a word. I word for a living. Sure. <laughs> um, but like, focus your description where it needs to be and it doesn't need to be everywhere. So, yeah. I always think about uh, David Gogren was on a podcast interview a couple of years ago and they asked him, I don't know how it came to this, but they asked him what he thought about Dan Brown. Mm-hmm. And David Gogren just said, uh, Here's my Dan Brown impression. The tall man walked into the long room and spoke to the sad woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think about that because if I look at a sentence and I have more than one adjective in it, you know, I absolutely cut them out. Yeah, right on. Well, all right. Well, that's a pretty good article. If you are like me and don't know, I've never been accused of it, so I guess I'm doing okay. So I'm pretty sparse on descriptions, though. I, I like to let people figure out what they can figure out. So, all right, good deal. The next story is kind of interesting. It is from. It's from The Guardian in the UK. Okay, you're good, Nick. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) In any event. It's from Madagascar. Yes, exactly. That's going to be our code word. Whenever we're talking about the UK, we'll say Madagascar. And Nick will be like, yeah, I love Madagascar. That was a great movie. The kids love it. (laughs) All right. We've got the author Salman Rushdie. Rushdie? Rushdie? I always say Rushdie, but it's probably Rushdie. And he is releasing his next book on Substack, right? Which is, you know, kind of like an online thing where people usually release like articles and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the author. You know, there was a big deal about him a while back. He wrote the Satanic Verses and had a fatwa put out on his life. And, you know, people who've been around him, you know, his translator was shot and killed. Other people involved were shot and killed. So. I just think that's kind of an interesting kind of cowboy situation in and of its own. But, you know, so he wrote this book and his next one's coming out and he's putting it on Substack. And for a guy who was what I think it was a finalist for the Booker Prize or something, that's kind of an interesting move. Uh, Pippa, what do you think about someone who's so big doing something like that? I think it's nice. He's got the like we were talking about last week. We need someone who's one of those big names to do the self-publishing thing before those books will start to get into the awards circuit. Mm. And so I think this is just, you've got big name authors that are starting to go the self-publishing route uh, from the literary world. And it's, we know that it doesn't specifically need legitimacy. It's legitimate in its own right, but the social perception will probably be helped. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, What do you think about Salman Rushdie and and Substack? Um, Well, Oh, Go ahead, Nick. Knock it out. Sorry, Jim. Oh, Nick, oh, whoever. Okay. I'll let Nick talk about Substack. That seems kind of interesting, a paid newsletter platform. But what I think is really interesting here is Salman Rushdie in moving over to self-publishing is making the exact same mistake that so many self-publishers have made before him where he says, I'm going to make it up as I go along and I have some starting points. Aside from the novella, it will feature short stories, literary gossip, and writing about books and film. Like- It's like everybody who sends their email newsletter pictures of their dog and their kids every month. Like they don't like I'm going to start this newsletter so I can tell my readers what I think about movies. Like, no, Salman, (laughs) people don't care what you think about movies. They just want to buy your books. Yeah, might be true. Might be true. I think, yeah, I I picked up on that too, Jim. And the challenge is going to be that he has plenty of traditional success. And so he's inadvertently, there's no way to not compare 
You know, I think if he doesn't make at least as much money or have as much success in self-publishing, probably going to be pretty hard for him to really like it, you know, and really promote it as an alternative. Because I think he's going to see that and be like, well, self-publishing doesn't make as much money. And it's like, no, it's because you're making up as you go along. You're doing all these things and, and you have a very successful traditional career behind you as well. But good for him. I think it's easy to poop on these guys because they're old and they do this different kind of platform or whatever and the new way of self-publishing and all that. So we don't need to do that because that's what this show does all the time. Or at least that's what I do because I like doing it. I like pooping. But uh, good for him for trying out some different new methods. I think the Substack idea is really interesting. I actually, to be honest, I don't know a lot about how the market is doing. It just seems like we had, uh, I don't know who was first, maybe it was Substack or Medium, but one of them comes out with a paid newsletter and then all of a sudden, you know, Facebook's in the game and then Twitter gets a uh, review. Is that what it's called? And, and they're all this like, okay, well, we can do this as well. So I don't know if there's actually people finding success there or if this is just venture capitalism at its finest, just throwing money at stuff, hoping that they can be the first to market because there's money there. So that's all I'll say about that part. I think it's an interesting concept. I do know that there are some paid newsletters that have done pretty well. Like I've been on some people's newsletters and mailing lists, but it's more for, that seems to be like more of the stock market guru people's game rather than just random internet person, if that makes sense. So this whole, all I'm saying is that has always been a model people could do. They could charge people to be on their mailing list, but this whole platform idea of a bunch of newsletters you could pay for is new to me and we'll see how it goes. I'm not optimistic that he's going to find a lot of success doing it this way. <laughs> I mean, but, you got to uh, think that there's going to be a huge... I'm sorry, Nick. No, no, you're good. I'm done. You got to think there's a huge chunk of his readers who are going to be upset that they now have to read his book in their email every morning. And they're going to be like, well, why can't I have this on my Kindle? Because it's a paid newsletter. It's not an ebook. I think that's going to turn off a ton of people who, you know, like as our readers are at least some measure of technical savvy to be able to download books and use BookFunnel. I'm just saying that the average indie reader is more savvy than the average traditional reader. And so it's going to be harder to get those people to read a book in their email versus it would still be hard for us to try to get our readers to read a book in an email, but I think they're more willing to do it. Yeah. It's also true that this could be a good way of, you know, the people who will sign up for this thing and pay for a newsletter to get first access to someone's stuff, right? And that's valuable for them. It's not really about the book as much as it's about getting that content in, you know, before everyone else, in before, in Reddit terms. And uh, I think that's one potential motivating factor for doing this because there's no reason he couldn't then take that content and turn it into the book and publish it or self-publish it the regular way, quote unquote, which might be a way to get new readers signed up and say, oh, I really like this guy. Oh, I didn't know I could go pay a little bit of money every month and get his right. It's like a Patreon type thing at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Well, do you think that that is maybe the end game for the content? Because it says that Substack wrote to his literary agent and then his literary agent pitched it to Salman. And so you wonder what's in it for the literary agent. Like, why would he be interested in kind of going that route? Do you think you can maybe hit two audiences with it or no? You know, to me, it seems like this guy is probably not considering hitting multiple audiences. I think he knows. And I think this is true that the audience is the Salmon Rushdie readers audience. And that's a bunch of different demographics all rolled into one. He's got a big enough name and clout in the book and publishing world that I think it doesn't really matter ultimately what he wants to do. I'm saying that I don't think what he chooses to do 
if he finds success with it, is it proof that that method works? It's just proof that people like him enough to follow him wherever he goes. You know, I don't think it's a model we need to be copying until we see, you know, a Hugh Howey situation where there was nobody there. And then all of a sudden you tried this method and boom, everybody loves it. Does that make sense? Like he's kind of starting with that status rather than building it from the ground up using this publishing methodology. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that'll be uh, something interesting. I guess we'll keep an eye and see how that works out for him. And uh, if there's any lessons we can learn from it. So I'm kind of looking at the time here and I think that we are going to wrap this thing up. You guys got anything uh, you want to add about any of these stories? Nope. Nope. Doesn't look like it. All right. Well, for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>